In beginning our time in, in God's Word this morning, I want to begin with a simple, simple question. And here it is. It's a question that we all ask ourselves or should ask ourselves as we work through God's Word this morning. Am I a person of first-generation faith? Am I a person of first-generation faith? And that's really kind of the, the, the thought process that we're going with this morning. That's where I want to work for us to be able to answer that as we leave this place later on after we have concluded our service. We'll get into the specifics of, of that question here in just a few moments. About 2,000 years ago, there was um, a small group of people who turned the world upside down. And they did it in a way that was honestly, it was completely unexpected. The way they did it was through the simple sharing of a message of a man that they'd spent three years with. It was a simple message of how Jesus came to earth as a God-man, how he lived a sinless, perfect life, how he died a death that he didn't deserve to die, and then three days after dying that death, how God raised him from the dead. Simple message. And honestly, the way they, they gave that message was also simple. It was incredibly simple. They didn't have technology where they could blast it out all through social media. They didn't have newspapers where it could be printed in a newspaper. They didn't have um, books as we would know it today that are mass produced and published so that people all over could read these books. Here's how they shared that message. They walked up to a person or they stood in front of a group of people and with their mouth, they simply proclaimed what God had done. They proclaimed that message. Now, um, David Platt once wrote a, uh, the foreword to a book entitled, I Am Going. This book is written by Daniel Aiken and um, Bruce Ashford. And in the foreword of that book, he says um, that in the period of about 300 years after people began proclaiming that message, there was an estimated 30 million people who had responded to it and said, I am repenting of my sins. I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. That's 30 million people in 300 years. And when you think about the fact that there is no mass technology production, that's pretty incredible. Because that message, all it did was come from the mouth of the person, of the believer, into the ears of other people. And then they responded to it. 30 million people, excuse me, three, yeah, 30 million people in 300 years. Now Platt, as, he, as he's writing there in that foreword, he continues by saying this. This small group of people heard a clear call from Jesus. Go, he said. Go to all the people of all the world and tell them the gospel, the good news of how God gives eternal life to all who confess Jesus as the Lord, as, as their Savior of their sins and the Lord of their lives. So they went, he continues, and the world was changed. 2,000 years later, the call remains the same. It is just as clear to you and me today as it was to them then. To every man, woman, and child who has put their faith in Jesus, Jesus has said, go. He has not called any one of us to come, be baptized, and sit in one location. No, he has commanded every one of us to go, baptize, and make disciples of all nations. If you continue reading what Platt has to say there, he goes on to talk about how that call to go starts wherever you live. The place in which you live right now, that's where it starts. The call to go then extends to wherever God leads you, no matter where that is. 
Today we're going to continue this journey of looking at God's overall plan, big picture plan. What, is, what has God done? What is God doing? What is he going to do in the future? Today we get to a passage of scripture in which we see a man go in a simple way. God commands him to go and he goes just like that. We're going to look at the faith of Abraham. We're going to look at the promises that God gave Abraham. Then we're going to look at what came later after Abraham. And we're going to apply all of that to us this morning. But let's go ahead and and begin our time with prayer and ask that God bless us here. Our Father, we come to you in this moment and we proclaim that you are God and we are not. Father, as humans, you have a plan for us. That plan is to enter into your family, to follow Jesus. Once we follow Jesus, that plan is for us to go to take the gospel to Judea, excuse me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Father, as we look this morning at an excellent example of a man who responded in obedience, who responded in faith to go by going, Father, I pray that this morning we follow that example Get rid of any distraction we brought into this room with us, and may you be glorified and honored in this place. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 12 is where you need to be in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 12, and this is the passage that Zach already read for us. I'm going to read through it again so we can uh, continue to wrap our minds around what's taking place here. So let's go ahead, and I want to invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word if you are able to do so. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Marah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word and you may be seated. Folks, the first thing that I pick out from my reading there um, about Abram and a little bit of study about him. By the way, Abram is how I'm going to refer to him in this sermon because that's the time period that we're looking at his, in his life. A little bit later, God would call his name Abraham, okay? But the first thing that I kind of pick out in Abram as I read through that story is the fact that it sure seems like Abram is a failure at life. Be honest with you. I don't explain this, okay? He seems like he is a failure at life. When God calls Abram, he's 75 years old, and that's upper middle age for this time period. He has no children. Now, here's the problem with that Abram's name means father, okay? But he doesn't have any children. 
So Abram, um, so Abram it means father, but he's not the father to any children. Later on, God's going to call his name Abraham, right? Which means father of many, father of many. And, and, and even at that time, Abram would only have one illegitimate son in Ishmael. But not only did Abram's name not fit his life, he was a man who was settled in a thoroughly pagan culture. He had come from Ur, the land of Ur. His father had brought him from Ur to, um, um, to Huron. And uh, the culture of Ur, of the Chaldeans, would have still been fresh in Abram's mind. And I want to give you a picture of, of how we see this, okay? Did you know that Abram was married to his half-sister? He's married to his sister. Um, and in Genesis chapter 20, Abram tells Abimelech, he says uh, that, that Sarah is his half-sister, but he's also his wife. Folks, it's, it's kind of like Abram's life was a joke before God called him. He had a name that didn't fit his life, and evidently the only woman that he could get to marry him was his half-sister. Um, how would you like for that to be your story at, at 75 years old? Uh, I sure wouldn't want that to be mine. But, but all jokes aside, listen, it's safe to say that even though Abram appears to have wealth, he had a complete lack of fulfillment in life beyond that. Now, how many of you feel like that is a part of your story, right? Not that you've married your half-sister or your half-brother, but you're, but you're walking through life and you look on that life and you think, where's the significance in this? The interesting thing with Abram, though, is that God comes to him and he tells him that he is going to take Abram's insignificant, even failure of a life, and he's going to give him a purpose and a calling unlike anything Abram had ever known before. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now folks, this is the moment of truth for Abram. God comes to him and says, go. That's, that's it, simply, go. Now, there's a whole lot that we can learn about God and how he interacts with mankind here in this passage, okay? First of all, God doesn't tell Abram where he is to go. He doesn't say, hey, you're going to go to this country or to this region, anything like that. He just says, go. Okay, all God says is that he's going to show Abram where he is to go, nothing more. And we know, because we know the end of the story, that Abram is heading to Canaan. He follows God to Canaan, but at this point, Abram doesn't know that. His obedience here is based on a knowledge, is not based on a knowledge of where he's going. It's based on trust and it's based on obedience to God. Now, folks, we can learn a lot from the example that we see here in Abram. And the fact that he simply obeys without having the final destination in mind. How about us? Are we willing to follow God even though God may not tell us where we're going? But then here's the next thing that we see here. God doesn't give Abram details on how to get there. Not only does he not say, hey, I'm taking you to this land. He doesn't say that to Abram. He doesn't even tell him the details that he supposedly needs to know to get to that land. God doesn't tell Abram who should go with him. He doesn't tell Abram what to take with him. He doesn't tell Abram if he should pack for cold weather or hot weather. He doesn't tell Abram if he should travel by, by train or by camel. He doesn't tell Abram any of that stuff. God doesn't give details. But here's the beautiful thing about the fact that God doesn't give details, okay? And, and, and Abram obeying in that. And that is that a heart that is sold out to doing whatever God calls that person to do doesn't need details. 
They're so excited about the chance to be involved in whatever it is that God's doing that they simply jump in obedience and trust God to work out the details. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't plan. In fact, what we see from the, from, um, from the model that we have here in Abraham is that in God's lack of details given to him, we see him in faith work to make sure those details are covered. But Abram doesn't mope around because he doesn't know, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Or he doesn't drag his feet in any way because he's afraid to take a step of faith. He simply moves in obedience to God. Folks, God simply asks for us to have an obedient heart that surrenders in faith to his plan. That's what God asked of us today. Now, we might not know the end destination, or we might not know the details in getting there, but the important thing is that we respond in faith to obedience to God. But listen to this, okay? With obedience to God's plan comes the knowledge that God never calls without a promise. God never calls without a promise. I want you to... Look at the promises that Abram or God gave to Abram. Okay, there's four of them here. Number one, God would make of Abram a great nation. That's what we find in our Bibles there. God would make of Abram a great nation. Now, this is not going to happen in Abram's lifetime, but it very generously came to pass down the road. Uh, you might remember from your Bible reading that, um, that after Abram came Isaac, after Isaac came Jacob, and uh, Jacob had 12 sons who would then become the fathers of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. From that, there was an explosion of growth of the nation of Israel. From there, millions, literally millions of descendants would come, and there's going to be times throughout the future in which that nation is going to be powerful. It's going to be influential. God would fulfill his promise to make of Abram a great nation. But then secondly, God would bless Abram and make his name great. God would bless Abram and make his name great. Even today, Abraham is touted as the father of the Jewish nation. Okay, You ask, who is the father of the Jewish nation to any Jew? And they would say it would be Abraham. But it's not just the Jews that claim him as father. Muslims do as well through the line of Ishmael. They claim father uh, Abraham as the father of their nation. Regardless of the line that you're talking about, there's literally billions of people who over the, over the past 400, or excuse me, 4,000 years have known the name of Abraham and they can trace their roots back to him as father. God's promise to Abram to make his name great was something that has been fulfilled over time. Number three, God would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. Cecil Sherman is a commentator who... Um, in his commentary on this passage, made the comment, God will condition his blessings and cursings on the way people react to Abraham's descendants. God will condition his blessings and cursings on the way people react to Abraham's descendants. For thousands of years, we have seen this come true. God blesses those who bless the nation of Israel, and God dishonors and he curses nations who are in open opposition to the nation of Israel. There's no point in all of history or in the future in which God is going to be done with the nation of Israel. They are his people. It's a promise that began with Abram. They're going to continue to be his chosen people. God chooses to honor them. God chooses to bless them through Abram. Number four, God would, by Abram, bless all the families of the earth. 
By Abram, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. Now, that's something that's not going to be realized until Jesus came to earth and died, not just for the Jews, not just for the line of Abraham, but he also died for all of mankind. Jesus would be the one who God would use to bless all the families of the earth with salvation. Jesus would be born in the line of Abraham, and one day, every single person from every tribe and tongue is going to have the opportunity to be blessed by the salvation that Jesus has to offer. They all have that opportunity. Folks, those are the four promises that God gave Abram when he called him out of the land that he was currently inhabiting to go to another land that God had laid aside for him and his descendants. God never calls without a promise. He never calls without a promise. Now, in contrast to Abram, God's calling on us is not going to exactly result in the same kind of blessings promises that God gave Abram. In fact, um, rarely is it that God's going to bless you with great wealth, okay? Um, now, he may, he may provide you a great wealth so that you can bless other people and you can fulfill his plans and his purposes in the world, right? God's promise is rarely that he's going to bless you with great health. Uh, in fact, there's a good chance that carrying out what God's called you to do is going to require a taxing on your body, on your physical body of some kind, God's promise is rarely that everybody's going to know your name. He may choose to make your name great um, so, that, so that his name can receive glory through the platform that he gives you. In general, though, some of the greatest servants of God in history have been the ones who serve their whole lives in obscurity with no great common knowledge of people knowing who they are. The promises that God made to Abram are going to be different than the promises that he makes to us. But as believers today, as believers today, we have a standing promise from God that is nothing short of incredible, okay? It's a standing promise in that it is always there. Before Jesus left the earth, what did he promise us? Right? He promised that he was going away, but he would never leave us or forsake us, and that he would provide a helper who would come alongside of us and indwell, the Holy Spirit would indwell us, and we would, wherever we go, carry the very presence of God with us, okay? That's a standing promise of God for all, of, all believers, God never calls without a promise. If nothing else, then we've got the beautiful and never-ending promise of the presence of God that's never going to leave us. So the calling has come. The promises have been given. Now what does Abraham do? Or what does Abram do? Verse 4, look at this. So Abram, what did he do? Went. All right, let's say that again. So Abram went, right, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. He set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Moriah, and at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Folks, it is simple. Oh, so very simple. So Abram went. But not only did he go, but he went as the Lord had told him. He's not just on this journey, on this sightseeing tour. He's going as the Lord had told him to go. Folks, there's something about the faith of Abram that is incredible. If you ever want an example of what faith in God's plan and how you fit into God's plan should look like, look no further than Abram here. Okay, as he responds to what God's called him to do. When God calls, he simply goes. I shared with you this quote sometime back from Martin Luther about faith. 
in which he says faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you ever joyful and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. Because of it, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Folks, if there is anyone that this quote from Luther describes, it would be Abram, as he trusted God and he responded when God called. His faith was a living, bold trust in God's grace. Abram had the faith to do exactly what God commanded him to do. But folks, that was just the faith of Abram. What happens a little bit later in Abram's line? Did they have, let's just say, the children of Israel. Did they have the same kind of faith that Abram had? No. No, they didn't. In fact, what you find from them oftentimes is, a, is sort of a, a, a stumbling, a struggling faith. A couple of weeks ago at homecoming, I challenged our church to hang on to first-generation faith. The kind of faith that Abram had, that the early disciples had, right? That, that the founders even of Salem had. I want to show you for a few moments the differences between first-generation faith like Abram had and second-generation faith like his descendants had. Here's a table here up on the screen for you. Left side is first-generation. Right side is second-generation. First-generation does whatever it takes. They do whatever it takes. Second-generation does only what I'm asked to do. I'm not going to be involved in this unless I'm asked to be involved in it. But yet that first generation says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to follow God in what he has called me to do. First generation assumes personal responsibility. Second generation assumes someone else will do it. All right, before you think, okay, well, I am first generation across the board here. I want to ask you a question, okay? Specifically with evangelism on this second point, first generation assumes personal responsibility. Second generation assumes somebody else is going to do it. How often do we fall into the trap of, hey, I don't have to evangelize or tell other people about Jesus because I'm sure somebody else is going to come along the, uh, who's going to share that. Folks, that is second generation faith. All right, moving on. First generation expects personal sacrifice. Second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation says, I expect to have to sacrifice something of myself for the good of God, for, for his, the calling that he's placed on me. The second generation says, um, no, I'm expecting comfort. First generation sees problems and seeks solutions. Second generation sees problems and complains. That's very true, y'all. First generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. Second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. Now, let me ask you something. If Abram had second generation type faith, he would have looked at the big, massive barrier that he had in front of him of a desert where God was calling him to go. And he would have said, ah, no, it's too big. I'm going to quit. And in doing so, he would not have fulfilled the calling that God had on his life. But instead, he looks up there and he sees a problem and he seeks solutions, right? He just, he just goes, First generation sees possibilities. We already read that one. Uh, first generation hears the voice of God firsthand and owns the vision. Second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. 
First generation steps out with bold, reckless trust in God. Second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I'm reading this, I'm being convicted. Because oftentimes I fall into that second generation category. Going on. First generation fears holding anything back from God. Second generation fears commitment. First generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement. Second generation feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. Now I can imagine that as we sit here and we look at a table such as that and and we read differences between first generation and second generation faith. There are some points on on that table in which we think, yeah, I think I can accurately say, and with all honesty and humility, say that I fall into the first generation category there. But there's also a very good chance that as you read this, you look and you realize, oh no, but I've got some areas in which I'm in the second generation faith category. Folks, the faith that Abram had was a first generation type faith. And do you see what God did to bless him? And I'm not talking about the material blessings. I'm talking about God being able to be faithful in what he had promised him because Abram is faithful in what God calls him to. Abram had first-generation faith. The sad reality, though, is that it didn't take long at all, and his descendants no longer had that same faith. Folks, God does not call his people ever to second-generation-type faith. Ever. Ever. He calls them to bold, trusting faith. Salem, as I think about first-generation faith and what that means for us as a church, what it means for us as individuals, I firmly believe it means that we continue to step out in faith in ways that are sometimes different and sometimes difficult. Specifically, as I think about it, I wonder at what God might be calling us as a church to do to advance his kingdom. Right? I firmly believe that we've been strategically placed here by God to make a dent in reaching the lost with the gospel. There's a huge number of people who do not know Jesus who are all around us in our city. How should Salem Baptist Church act in first-generation faith to reach those people? All around Winston-Salem, there's churches who are closing their doors because of a lack of vision and a, and a lack of resources, a lack of passion to fulfill what God's called them to do. So my question with that is this. What might happen if we raised up pastors here in our church to send out and shepherd these churches so God can once more be glorified and honored through those churches? Jesus' command was to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, right? What is it going to look like for us to launch out more missionaries in the next 25 years than Salem has at any point in the past? How can we continue to develop the amazing resource that God's given us in Camp Marywood to see more and more kids come to Christ in future years? Folks, we got property out there that needs to be upgraded and developed because of its age. We cannot look at Marywood simply as property, but as a resource that God has called Salem to use to bring kids into the saving knowledge of his son. What about the continued development of our Christian school? 
Right, we currently have 370 kids in that school who are being taught a biblical worldview and who will one day be the ones to take the gospel to whatever workplace, both foreign and domestic, that they're called to go to by God. They are the ones that are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Folks, do you know what's going to take place on, on um, April 19th and 21st of this, of this year? It's Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday and Easter. Easter is the day in which the church comes together to celebrate the single greatest victory that's ever taken place in the history of the universe. It's a day of celebration. It's a day for us to proclaim the supremacy of Jesus and celebrating his resurrection. Folks, several months ago, I, I began praying that we would have, get this, 500 people in attendance here on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday. 500 people who could come together and see us as the redeemed church of Jesus Christ worship together so that they could see what that's like. And I'm not talking about 500 people who already go to a church somewhere. I'm talking about us inviting people who are not involved in a church anywhere. Many who may be unsaved, many who may be de-churched for one reason or another. But folks, that's something that I've been praying. God, would you bring 500 people to our service on Easter Sunday morning? And would you use the people in our church to reach out to those who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ to bring them in? You're going to hear a whole lot more about that in the next several weeks, including tools of how we can equip you to do that. But church, what would it look like for us to have first-generation faith where we say, God, we are going to act in faith and we're going to go and we're going to go to those who desperately need you and tell them about you? What might that look like? Not only in our church, but in our city, what would that look like? If we're going to reach people with the gospel, though, church, listen to me. If we're going to reach people with the gospel, it's going to have to come through a first generation like faith and not a second generation like faith. Over and over again, I'm being struck with the reality that God has not taken his hand of blessing off of Salem Baptist Church. And his calling for us to reach people has not changed in any way, in any way whatsoever. But the only way that he can use us as he wants is if we are committed to the same kind of first generational faith that Abram had when God called him. Abram laid it all on the altar. He gave up everything that was comfortable to him to follow God. He didn't do so begrudgingly. He didn't fight with God. He didn't question God or with a desire for personal comfort or, or personal edification. Disobey God? No, he obeyed God in faith. Now, there's other times in which Abram does a horrible job of obeying God. But what we see over and over and over again in Abram's life is a general posture of obedience to and faith in God. Romans chapter 4, verse 3 says it this way. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and God looked on him for his obedience and saw him as a righteous man. Folks, what do you believe God for? What do you, as an individual sitting here under the sound of my voice right now, believe God for? And is what you believe God for consistent with the promises that he has made and the calling that he has on your life? Do you believe God when you read that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works? Do you believe God has set you apart as righteous because of your salvation? 
Do you believe God has called you out of your state of sin and into a personal relationship with his son, Jesus? Do you believe God when he told you that he would never leave you or forsake you and that he would send a helper who would embody the very presence of God in your life? Do you believe God that he is preparing a place for you in heaven and that you will spend eternity in his presence? Do you believe God that he has given you a calling to proclaim his glory all over the earth by sharing his story with those you come in contact with? And what about this? Do you believe God that you can trust God and follow him even if he calls you outside of every comfort zone that you've ever built for yourself? Do you believe God? There's a man by the name of Frederick Brotherton Meyer who once wrote about Abraham, and, and I want to close with this thought. The keynote of Abram's life was separation. Step by step until kindred, country, kindred, lot, himself, worldly alliances, and fleshly expedients were one by one cast aside and he stood alone with God. Though he knew not whither he went, the father of the faithful obeyed and crossed the wide and perilous deserts. It was this absolute and unquestioning obedience that endeared him to God. Let us ever obey and step out, though it seems as though there were naught but seething mist. We shall find it solidify under the tread of faith. Folks, will you be a person of first-generation faith? Ask yourself, am I a person of first-generation faith? Will you, like Abraham, step out and say, God, I don't know what I'm in for, but I'm in regardless of what it is. It might cost me everything that I hold dear in life, but I am in. Sign me up. I'm answering the call. Folks, this morning in closing our service, we're going to sing the song, All I Have is Christ. And for the next couple of moments, that table is going to be up here on the screens. First generation faith compared with second generation faith. And I want to challenge you, go ahead and stand up right now. And I want you to look at this screen and I want you to think about, am I a person of first generation faith or am I a person of second generation faith? And then sing the anthem to God that all I have is Christ. Christ.